This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And I'd like to get to a few stories that have been overshadowed by the vaccine rollout. First, the damage to the Ontario government over the resignation of former Conservative Cabinet Minister and former Toronto Mayor David Crombie and six of his colleagues from Ontario's Greenbelt Council. Now, he quit in response to measures contained in the Progressive Conservatives' omnibus budget bill that he said would gut key environmental protections. Now, after that, Steve Clark, the Minister of Municipal Affairs, called a hasty news conference announcing that the provincial government is investing $30 million to create and restore wetlands across Ontario. Uh, but we didn't hear that they're taking those provisions out of that omnibus bill, which is always a good place to bury things. Uh, the government is also under increasing pressure because of a lack of timely action in long-term care and weak regulation in the retirement home sector. But let's start with the environment. First, let me give you the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Erd's Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. Hello and welcome, guys. Hi, Libby. Libby. Uh, let us start with Charles. Uh, so wh- what do you make of David Crombie's resignation? And uh, was uh, Steve Clark's response to that? Uh, did that work? And, and um, is it damaging? Um, you know, this goes to a, a fairly central issue where the provincial government is concerned, namely its ability uh, under ministers' zoning orders to basically run roughshod over municipal planning. And it's particularly dangerous for the government for the simple reason that, you know, there, there, there's some perceptions out there that relations between the government and certain ministers and, and developers are a little too uh, cozy. And, and that's just not the case for this current conservative government, it's for most governments, in fairness. But in this instance, it, it, it's, it's, it feels like the government has overstepped. It's used ministers' zoning orders on 35 different occasions. And interestingly enough, um, I think on 14 or 15 occasions, they've actually used them for the purposes of, of building long-term care facilities, which is, um, which is interesting because, you know, obviously pre-COVID, I think there was a bit of a view that... Uh, Long-term care facilities were a big money maker, especially those that were privately owned and operated. Of course, that has um, uh, undergone intense scrutiny as a result of the pandemic, uh, and uh, things are, are quite possibly going to change there in a, in a very major way. But 
the government runs a serious risk of of making it look like it's in bed with developers and that it's willing to to um, basically throw away whatever municipalities have carefully planned over years. And and that is a perceptual problem. Mm -hmm. Well, and I remember back during the election campaign, there was a a great big brouhaha over a meeting, a private meeting that Ford had with some developers. John Capobianco, what do you say to this? I mean, uh, David Crombie is a lifelong conservative. Well, sure. Some would some would call him that. Some some others wouldn't probably call him that either. I think he's uh, he's always been a bit of a a bit of a moderate, but nonetheless, uh, you know, a reputable, a moderate a reputable conservative, but nonetheless a reputable person. But you know, listen, uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's his decision. He obviously felt that there was there was some fundamental changes of of uh, of thinking, and and obviously something that he disagreed with, and it was honorable for him to resign if he had those disagreements. In fact, I wish some others would do that uh, when it comes to, to those kind of disagreements. But minister zoning orders are not new. This, this is something that all governments and, and previous governments have used. And, and you know, this, and in particular, they, they often use it on non-provincially owned land and then usually in support by the local municipality. Local municipalities will have an issue. They'll they'll call the minister and and they'll have it they'll have it zoned more more for from from a development perspective. And this government's always made it clear that from the perspective of long term care facilities, if there's a need for that, especially during the pandemic, that they would prioritize that. And I think that's what you've seen. But I would also you know remind uh, folks too, Libby, that. This government and, and conservatives in the past are the ones that have been with the Oak Ridge's moraine and, and the Green Belt and, and also previous governments, uh, conservative governments with respect to, to, you know, just protecting parklands and whatnot. So we've always, conservatives have always been environmentally conscious about, about certain things. And, and this government is no different. I think that they're just looking at it from the perspective of making sure that, that there are priority projects outside the Green Belt that need to be looked after for jobs, long-term care homes, and other issues that they have to, uh, to do whilst still protecting the economy and protecting wetlands and the greenbelt. Karen Stintz, do you buy that? Oh, you know, I kind of fall somewhere in the middle between um, between John and Charles in that, you know, there, there's no question there's a tension that's emerging uh, between the municipalities, particularly Toronto and the government around planning. And uh, COVID really has overshadowed most of the other uh, tensions between the city and the province, but they, but they still exist. And they, um, while ministerial zoning orders, as John has mentioned, might be common outside of Toronto and outside of certain municipalities, uh, within more developed municipalities, they are they are not as common as one would think, and and in fact, actually um, cause controversy and tension within municipalities when they're used. And the government did use two ministerial zoning orders uh, recently in Toronto on, albeit government-owned land, so they were arguably within their purview to do that. But nonetheless, it did um, upset the planning regime that's in place. And, what, and you know, I think what David for, Crombie, if I may ask, do, do you they know? They were what? for condos. They were for condos. They were condos. For care homes. Yeah. Just what we need more of. Right. Exactly. And there may have been an affordable component to it, but they weren't long-term care facilities. And so there is a tension that's emerging. And, and David Crombie, you know, he is um, he's still a mayor, right? He was the mayor, and he understands the municipal uh, position around local autonomy with land use planning. So I, I think that there is probably a lot of things that led into that decision to resign. And, um, you know, he made a statement. And as John said, he, he felt very strongly about it, and he made a statement. And um, and he took a position. And, and if nothing else, I think it did cause the government to take a step back and look at uh, what they were doing to make sure it actually is the message that they want to send. 
Well, I mean, first of all, David Crombie, he wasn't just a mayor. He was a no, great no, mayor. He wasn't just a mayor. He, he was, but he, you know, he has an understanding of municipal politics. Uh, yeah, he was the tiny perfect mayor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, much beloved and uh, still, and then went on to be a, a cabinet minister in Brian Mulroney's government. So, yes, um, uh, but uh, we don't see any sign that that these things are going to be taking out of taken out of that omnibus bill. Uh, no. Do you, I mean, John, would you think that's under discussion now? It could be. I, I doubt it. I think that the government, once they have a, once they have something set uh, and, and they want to be able to focus on it, notwithstanding, you know, the, the perfect tiny mayor's uh, resignation. Um, I think, I think they're going to carry through. So I, I think they truly believe that what they're doing is the right thing with respect to allowing for, uh, the, the, the flexibility of ensuring that, you know, affordable housing and long-term care facilities and, and things that need and to condos. be built can be built. More condos. Well, condos. You know what, though? Maybe more condos. Well, look, I live in a condo, and, and condos are being built. I live in, in the south part of Etobicoke here, and there's condos all along the lakeshore. And you know what? They're all full, and there's waiting lists for people to get into them. So, you know, there's always need for, for those that, that condos, whether or not they're high-end or low-end, uh, they're they're actually uh, during the pandemic. A lot of them are are you know rentals. A lot of them were also just Airbnb, and uh, rents have come down. I mean, there have been a lot of changes because of the pandemic and, as to the condo market as well. Sure, that's yeah, a- but, but nonetheless, I, I know for a fact that there are people still on waiting lists to get into condos around here. But but that's to say that you know it depends on the area. Depends on on. Uh, but, but I do think that the, the pandemic, without a doubt, has caused issues with respect to people that want to move out of condos and into houses. I more, more, but quite frankly, people that want to move out of the city to move into more rural areas and suburban areas. Yep. Um, let's take a call from Pat. Uh, hi, Pat. Good afternoon. Uh, this is a topic I am very familiar with. I am part of a group that has a, an application for judicial review of failure by the environmental uh, department at the Ontario government to allow public comment. And um, this thing has been slowed down because of COVID. But that's one where we're having to go to Superior Court to get to the bottom. There's another situation I'm aware of down on Wollaston Lake, which is very concerning. This government is not environmentally friendly. That's just the reality. Okay, Pat, thank you for your input. Okay, so um, there you go. So that is, uh, you know, that's the way uh, I guess it's, it's seen. Uh, Karen, uh, again, do you think that's uh, damaging? Yeah, I do. I, I think that, um, again, uh, there, the perception that the government is not caring about the environment is out of step, I think, where most people are at. And um, irrespective of how you might feel about carbon taxes and whether they're effective or not, um, I think that there is a growing sense and a growing awareness and a growing desire to be more conscious of the environment. So uh, whether real or perceived, um, you know, again, because COVID has taken over everything over the last year, um, the government hasn't had to answer those questions, but there will be a time that they will have to. And so if this is a step for them to take a pause and consider how they want to be perceived, this might be the right time. Okay, there there are a couple of other things. I mean, uh, I, either a week or two weeks ago, I can't remember, the Auditor General came out with a report on long-term care. Pretty scathing report. The perception is that they did not take advantage of the summer 
to protect long-term care. I just looked at the stats, you know, in the worst of it, 80% of the deaths were in long-term care. Well, uh, it's gone down to 60, but that's still not acceptable. And we haven't seen the worst of it yet. And we're not seeing more staff. Uh, we're not seeing a lot of things, even though, uh, you know, the minister gets up every day and saying, we are doing everything we can. There's a, a CARP campaign to get rid of the minister of long-term care. So is, is that something that the government will suffer from, John? Well, you know, without a doubt that any any you know you know any news and and death, be it in long term care or anywhere, is just not 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 what the government wants to hear and and, and wants to face. Obviously, um, and this government is trying to deal with that in, in the ways that they possibly can uh, with respect to the pandemic. They're they're spending a lot of money, notwithstanding what the AG or what the financial accountability officer said with respect to contingency funds. There, this government is spending a lot of money with respect to hospital beds and. And backlogs and flu vaccines and all sorts of areas that they're, they're focusing on. Is it enough? Is it enough money? Never enough money. But they're trying to spend it and they're going to continue to spend the money. But with respect to, to long-term care, I was heartened that, that it was the premier who was one of the first ones to put together a vaccine task force, uh, led by, uh, by, uh, Rick Hillier that, that obviously focuses on long-term care uh, facilities as one of the first groups of, of, of people to, uh, cohorts to get the vaccine, which is right. Both long-term care um, uh, patients and also and also support workers, and I think that's smart. John, that- John, just to to interrupt you, and because this is something I'm dealing in with in the next segment, but that's not going to happen, not through any fault of the government, but it is becoming increasingly clear that it's not going to be possible to get that vi- a Pfizer vaccine to long term care. It's only going to be for people who can get to larger facilities. But, yeah, and, but and I, I also, digress. I also know too. I also know too, Libby, that the the, the Northwest Territories are also saying that they don't want the Pfizer vaccine because right. it's too complicated and too, uh, uh, not only too complicated from a storage perspective, but also from a dispensing perspective. And that's a problem. So I think Moderna and others are, are hoping to be able to come right behind them and, and use them. But nonetheless, I think that's the issue. There's never enough money uh, to be able to fix this, this problem. But I think that the government is trying to do their best by spending money and by doing what they can, uh, especially when it comes to long-term care facilities. Uh, Charles, it, ultimately, um, when this is all over, will, will the government be hurt by a perception, um, and a reality, in my opinion, of a lack of action in long-term care when they had time to prepare? And when they had $12 billion that wasn't allocated by the end of the second quarter, at least according to the, the government's financial accountability office. Um, and, and that, that may be the bigger political problem for the government, the sense that they were not making investments over the summer in the kinds of areas that would have made life a lot more tolerable and might even have saved lives as we enter into the, the second wave of the pandemic or now that we feel the, the full brunt of the second wave of the pandemic. And that's a bigger problem because what's what's the money for? Why are you why are you not spending this money in the midst of a pandemic? I mean, you've got a federal government that is clear clearly carrying the brunt of the load in terms of its spending, spending hundreds of billions of dollars. And so why is the provincial government squirreling away this money? Um, and the obvious answer is because with an election in 2022, if not sooner, um, you know, they, they want to be able to point to the balance sheet and say, hey, look what great financial managers we are. And that is seriously flawed, mixed messaging in terms of where the government's priorities are. And I just go back to something John said earlier with regards to the municipal zoning orders and, you know, how it's important to um, 
things like affordable housing. In October alone, we saw three new orders for provincial land in the West Onlands. Municipal officials had no idea. They only found out by accident when they saw the postings on a provincial website. But in each of those cases, the orders made no provision for affordable housing, just the opposite. So, I mean, again, it goes to mixed messaging, and this is the kind of thing that gets governments in trouble over time. Karen, um, so back to long-term care, what is your view about the importance of that situation? And also, yesterday, the Auditor General pointed out, and this is more relevant to your family situation, I think, that, that really... Uh, the regulation regime for retirement homes, which is different, is, is lax. And also she, she uh, underscored what we all know and have known for ages is that a lot of people in retirement homes really should be in long-term care for the care they need, but there's no space for them. Yeah, and I, I think that when the dust settles and families reflect, um, I, I think that there will be a combination of frustration around not preparing, but also, um, more personally speaking, the fact that Families were shut out of those facilities for a long, long time. And it was, you know, it was clear that shutting us out wasn't going to have an impact on whether the virus came back into the facility. And so they didn't take the steps to protect the staff. They kept the families away from their loved ones. The families were, you know, people were aging in place and and isolated from their families. And the long-term impacts of that isolation are still, we're, we're still learning about. So I think that's where families are really going to have something to say to the government about, you know, you did all these things, you spent all this money, rightly or wrongly, you kept me from my loved ones, my loved ones still got sick, or even worse, they they just suffered a lonely, lonely existence for a year and deteriorated to the point that, you know, their dementia increased. And so that's where I think when the dust settles, families are going to have the issue with the government and the government's going to have to have a really good response because... It has been intolerable for many families to not be able to see their loved ones during I, this time. I, I can uh, hear the emotion in your voice. How's your dad? He's okay. He's okay? He's okay. Yeah. And and uh, uh, are you seeing him now or not? I am. He's still in rehab um, because we're, I'm trying to get him moved into a retirement home that's had an outbreak. <laughs> so he's not able to move. But he can't walk. He won't walk again. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I'd like to um, move along to the whole questions. Last week, there was a poll about the premier's popularity, and the least popular premier was Brian Pallister. And after that came out, he came out with this like emotional, I don't know, rant that had him ending up on American Network television after it went viral. Let's have a listen. I'm the guy who's stealing Christmas to keep you safe because you need to do this now. You need to do the right thing. Stay safe. Protect each other. Love each other. Care for each other. You got so many ways to show that, but don't get together this Christmas. So uh, was that the reason that he's so unpopular? Because it seems that everybody else is stealing Christmas too. And, and was that a, a, a brilliant move or, or what? Who, Charles, what do you think? Well, I, I thought it was terrific. And I thought the, the core of the message is don't get together, right? Which is really what there's a crying need for people to understand that you know, getting together in in larger groups, even within a family unit, is potentially deadly. That this Christmas could be your last Christmas. 
And, you know, there, there's no doubt that, as I've said before, these folks are under tremendous pressure. I mean, you look at Jason Kenney in Alberta, and he has long clung to the notion that, you know, we're not going to clamp down the economy. Um, and uh, and his province is on fire. He yeah, and they're calling, the they're, they're calling for the army, I hear. And it's and and you know and now what you're seeing um, and not to not to move things from Manitoba to Alberta, but I mean you're seeing um, a counter reaction by some in the far left saying, well, we should say no to Alberta and the request for federal aid because they brought this on themselves. Oh, really? And you, and you can imagine how this is playing in Alberta and in Western Canada, right, where there where there's traditionally some degree of grievance in terms of of uh, sentiment. And you know, it, it's just the makings of, of of a disaster when you when you get that kind of rhetoric being tossed back and forth. But again, it's in the nature of COVID. So much of this is so new, and it's exacerbated so many different aspects of our life. It's also exacerbated our political discourse. It's arguably the only thing that could have taken down Donald Trump, and it did. Uh, John. So what do you think of, of uh, Pallister's? I'm, uh, maybe we'll have a few minutes for Trump at the end, but we don't need him today. Joe- we have, we have a drinking game of Vietnam with alcohol, but with water, that every time Charles mentions Donald Trump, we have to take a swig. <laughs> uh, and, and, and Charles is always never disappointed. So glad that he mentioned Trump. But on the, on the Brian Pallister issue, uh, let me tell you, this would be, he's actually a friend of mine. I've known, uh, I've known Brian for some time. In fact, when he ran for the progressive conservative leadership federally back in the day, I actually supported him. I was one of the few that did, but supported him, and we've remained friends ever since. And now let me just put some context to this. Brian Pallister wears his emotions on his sleeves. He, he if you ever Clearly. see him in, in speeches, <laughs> he actually is a, an emotional guy, which is perfectly fine. Whether or not you're a political leader or not, he, he just happens to be an emotional guy, and and he and he and he speaks with emotion. And and I think that the message that he gave and he was trying to give was, look, you guys, if you're not listening to to your health officials, listen to me by saying that this is crazy. You can't be doing this. And it was an emotional plea to try to save lives. And that is just quintessential Brian Pallister. So, you know, other other premiers, you know, uh, Charles mentioned Jason Kenney, who's who's not emotional. No. But even even Premier Ford, uh, at certain times at his press conference, has got emotional. Like, there are people uh, that are just emotional leaders, and, and especially when a message of, of with, with pain and death and suffering, uh, they just tend to get emotional, as, as you saw with Brian Pallister and, and others. Well, the the emotion I think uh, um, plays well. It's it's when it's not followed through with with action. I mean, um, it's just it, it's curious, uh, Karen. Do you think Pallister was unpopular because he stole Christmas, or for whatever other reasons there might be? No, I, I think that there was um, maybe maybe a little slow to act um, in Manitoba, and maybe um, coming out to say, okay, I. And I think there was a lot of going on in that emotion. One was, you know, I hate the idea that families can't be together at Christmas, but we have to do the right thing. To also, maybe I waited too long to put the measures in place that would have prevented this. So there's, I'm sure, a lot going on in, in that emotion. Um, and, you know, I guess, you know, part of the struggle in Manitoba was that they were relatively spared from COVID. You know, they didn't, in the initial wave one, they didn't really experience it. There was maybe some skepticism about the severity of it. They went into the summer and they, you know, had single-digit cases. And so, you know, this could have just caught them quite by surprise because something that they thought they had avoided entirely is now on their doorstep. And um, 
all the things that Ontario was dealing with several months ago. Now Manitoba is being forced to deal with right now um, at the time that, you know, Christmas is coming and families want to be together. So I think that there is a lot of things that are going on right now. Um, and, and whether or not uh, Brian Pallister is seen to be the leader that's in control, I think will determine whether he can rebound in the polls. Uh, we see other leaders telling people not to gather. I mean, uh, I'm going to be talking to John Tory in just a few minutes, and he, he even has, on top of being uh, uh, very prolific on media, he's got a, a public service announcement. Is it, are those messages from our leaders, are they mm-hmm. getting on people's nerves, or are they working, or both? Uh, well, let me just say, I think they have to do it, right? There has to be a message, and it has to be a consistent message, and it has to be done on a regular basis, especially during a pandemic when it's unprecedented in the likes of which we're seeing. And I give credit to the mayor, who has been very steadfast and very strong, and even has pushed back on the province at times with respect to lockdowns and doing things. And, you know, they're always going to get some criticism about not doing enough, but I think the city of Toronto certainly has through the mayor, and I think you know, and I think those are the issues that they always face. If it's if it's municipal, provincial, or even at the federal level, um, where you know where, where Prime Minister Trudeau was, you know, on a daily basis, getting out there telling people to wear masks and socially distance. Those messages have to happen. And, and despite people getting sick and tired of them, if you don't say it, is when they start saying, "Oh, I'm not hearing our political leaders saying it anymore." So maybe it's okay to do it. But but uh, are are the messages getting to the point? We keep hearing about COVID fatigue, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to scoop myself in my next interview. But we keep hearing about COVID vaccines. So, are those messages getting to be counterproductive? It's like I, I don't want to hear that guy anymore or that woman, Charles. Mm, I mean, it, first off, I'd say John Tory has done a terrific job, and we are very fortunate that he is the mayor of Toronto at this time during such a such a terrible experience as is the pandemic. You know, you can say it a thousand times, and you have to say it a thousand times if it's going to get through. You 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 repeat repeatedly and keep repeating. Those messages are so key, but there's always going to be a certain percentage of folk who who just won't hear it, who won't get it, and then you know you can follow further down the extreme into the folks who are anti-maskers who believe COVID is a hoax, and and this is this is where things really start to get dangerous. Because one of the ironies of COVID is it's the folks who aren't wearing masks who are presenting the greatest risk to others. To wear a mask is to protect those around you. To not wear a mask is to endanger those around you. And so that's and and one of the one of the things that's been talked about a lot, but I don't think it's been fully understood, is how is it that we have a certain percentage of people out there who who believe that masks don't do any good or that COVID is a hoax or that Elvis is still alive or any one of the thousands of conspiracy theories that are floating around the Internet and, in fact, have been empowered by the Internet. And in many respects, this, this could be the, the preeminent challenge to our democratic functioning in the coming years, which oh. is that these things are so powerful and oh. have a life of their own. Okay. Um, I've got to wrap things up now. Thank you so much, John Capobianco, Charles Bird, and Karen Stintz. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.